Welcome to the Geopolitics and Empire podcast. We've been on summer break, but we're back. Don't forget to subscribe to our channel on YouTube and SoundCloud, our social media on Twitter and Facebook. Leave us a review on iTunes. Sign up to our weekly email newsletter on geopoliticsandempire.com. And leave us a donation if you're so inclined on Patreon, PayPal, or Bitcoin. Today, we're speaking with Major Danny Sherson, whose work I have been reading for years. He's a U.S. Army strategist and former history instructor at West Point. He served tours with recon units in Iraq and Afghanistan. His memoir of the Iraq War is Ghost Riders of Baghdad, Soldier Civilians, and the Myth of the Surge. He co-hosts the Fortress on the Hill podcast, and he can be found on Twitter at Skeptical Vet. We'll be talking about the wars in the Middle East and whether the U.S. is pulling out of countries such as Afghanistan or looking to expand their presence to neighboring countries such as Iran. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Major. Oh, I'm so glad to be here. Thanks for having me on. Now, it's great to have uh, someone like yourself on because you're someone with skin in the game. You've put your life on the line in Iraq and Afghanistan, and you continue to put your reputation and livelihood on the line by speaking out against the establishment's wars. A week ago, you wrote a piece for Truth Dig titled How the U.S. Shattered the Middle East, and this covers the general theme of what I'd like to talk to you about. There's so much happening uh, it's the 18th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks, and yesterday, National Security Advisor John Bolton was fired by President Trump. 9-11 was the source of the global war on terror, which has enabled the wars in Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya, Yemen, Syria, and even on the African continent. What is most important for you when reflecting on 9-11, the global war on terror, and whether perhaps the body count of a million plus caused by U.S. foreign intervention in the Middle East has perhaps gone far enough? You know, I'm from New York. I'm from New York City. I'm from a blue-collar neighborhood on Staten Island. Um, we were devastated by 9-11. Family friends died. Most streets in our neighborhood are renamed for dead firemen. You know, on 9-11, you know, even on 9-12, I should say, you know, I was a true believer. Um, I'm embarrassed to say. I, was, um, I had just turned 18 years old. I was already in the Army at West Point. Uh, when the towers came down, I watched uh, from boxing class, actually. Uh, I watched the footage, and I knew I was going to war, and I was happy that I was going to war. I, I, uh, I felt like it was a crucible for a young man, and uh, I wanted revenge. Eighteen years have now passed. I've served in both Iraq and Afghanistan, and I've been an you know, analyst and student of these wars for 18 years. And I think the biggest takeaway, and this is provocative for a lot of people, even in my own family, but the biggest takeaway is to understand two things. One, how distant these wars have become from the uh, ostensible justification of 9-11. I would argue that, for example, the war in Afghanistan no longer has anything to do with 9-11, right? We're fighting Taliban farm boys uh, who had nothing to do with 9-11 in any, in any real sense, and we've gone off the rails. And the second one is what you mentioned, which is the body count. You know, 3,000 Americans nearly died on 9-11, and that was a tragedy. However, you know, upwards of a million brown folk, okay, uh, for lack of a better word, have died as a result of America's uh, revenge wars, which is really what they were. And, and it seems that uh, here in the States, those lives don't matter, right? Um, you know, conservatives, in response to the Black Lives Matter movement, like to say that all lives matter, but that's clearly not true. We, we value American life much more. So on 9-11, I want us to remember uh, the victims of American revenge war 
across the greater Middle East from West Africa to Central Asia. And, and I fear that today, if you watch the American mainstream media, you'll hear nothing about that. Instead, you'll hear, you know, romantic diatribes about the sacrifice of those 3,000 Americans. And so you've said that, for example, the Afghan war is so far now removed from the events of 9-11. And in your recent article, you seem to say that Washington's goals in the Middle East have, in a way, been to create failed states. You write that roughly you counted 22 states that have been turned into 37 autonomous, hardly governed zones, so almost double uh, the amount. And this kind of reminds me of Thomas Barnet's Pentagon's map, which kind of depicted seemingly the U.S. attempting going around the world, attempting to force independent or sovereign states that are not fully globalized or integrated into the or incorporated into the Western financial uh, and political structure, you know, going around to these countries like Venezuela, Iran or Syria or some of these Middle Eastern countries and trying to like break, th break them down. And so could you elaborate a little bit on your article? And so, so what are we doing now? Is, wh why is Washington shattering the Middle East, as you say? It's hard not to be conspiratorial in one's thinking at this point. Uh, we were told that we went to Afghanistan because uh, the most dangerous thing we were told by the experts, quote unquote, is ungoverned spaces that can create uh, safe havens, right, for transnational jihadist Islamist terrorism. Um, of course, the uh, result of America's many, many, countless really interventions in the greater Middle East has been the very fracture of those societies uh, by the American military or by uh, the American military's allies, often the Gulf states of uh, Saudi Arabia and the UAE. So it is hard to understand uh, these wars in any other framework than apparently Washington and the military industrial complex wants forever war because the demonstrable empirical outcome is fracture and more ungoverned spaces and, and the, the more of them we create it creates a cycle whereby there's a new justification for the next intervention and it, it is hard to think that that's not the goal and and at some point i think it is and and trump supporters use the term deep state and, and i don't like that term but they're on to something i must say um i just call it the national security warfare state and it's been in place since Harry Truman, and it's really gone off the rails. We're through the rabbit hole, Alice, at this point. And I think um, those with interests in forever war, those who profit from forever war, and this includes the arms dealers, the corporate media, the national security advisors, the bipartisan consensus of politicians, the lobbyists, they're all making a lot of money. Right. They're all their livelihoods, the think tanks, the livelihoods of the of 90 percent of the think tanks rely on these wars. And so, you know, who profits? Right. Qui bono. Well, I'll tell you who does not profit. Uh, the soldiers under my command who died in Iraq and Afghanistan whilst earning thirty thousand dollars a year and sometimes living on food stamps. Uh, they are not profiting from these wars, uh, but there are there is a class of bigwigs that is. And 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 the reality has been. Uh, you know, it's a chicken or egg question. Does Washington fracture the states on purpose in order to maintain forever war? Or is that the accidental outcome and the result is forever war? You know, I'm not convinced. I haven't seen a smoking gun yet that proves that this was the plan all along. But there is some evidence 
some troubling evidence, for example, the project for the New American Century, right, the PNAC think tanks, you know, uh, memo before a year before, almost a year to the day before 9-11 that essentially said without a Pearl Harbor-like attack, we can't uh, achieve our goals, which is to maintain United States hegemony and corporate control of resources across the greater Middle East. Yeah, you know, I was going to ask you about that. I was going to jump a, l- a little bit forward to ask you about uh, Iran. But yeah, in the 1990s, we had the Wolfowitz Doctrine and the Project for New American Century. Then we have the full spectrum dominance and then General Wesley Clark's admission that the U.S. had planned uh, seven Middle Eastern uh, uh, to invade seven Middle Eastern countries. Um, but I wanted to get back to Afghanistan and recently what's been on the news where Trump called off the talks with the Taliban after a recent uh, attack on U.S. troops in Afghanistan. And, you know, Afghanistan's always been coveted by empire from the British to the Russian to the now American empire. And you talk about profits, you know, Afghanistan's got a trillion dollars in mineral uh, resources. I think, uh, according to a UN report, over 90% of the world's heroin comes from Afghanistan. It's a key transit point for oil pipelines. It's a crucial pivot within uh, Halford Mackinder's heartland. Uh, we've also interviewed Noah Coburn. I don't know if you've read his book. He wrote a great book on how U.S. corporations are making a lot of money off of the war uh, through the logistics and services in Afghanistan. But do you think, and you wrote a piece about this, do you think uh, Trump will, uh, if the U.S. will pull out of Afghanistan ever, and if possibly Trump would be the person to do that? Well, it's disturbing for me to say this because I find the president to be both buffoonish and a, a rather nefarious actor. I'm no fan of President Trump. I think he is a uh, scourge along with his right wing allies that are coming to power across the world today. And I'm thinking, of course, of Brazil and you know Eastern Europe, etc. Um, and and now, of course, Boris Johnson in 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 Great Britain. But Trump has the best chance of ending these wars. Um, a Democrat won't end them because a Democrat will be afraid to look weak. That has generally been the case uh, since the Cold War, that Democrats start wars but don't end them because they're afraid to end them. They're afraid to look like they lost the war. No one wants to be the first president to lose a war. Of course, we've lost several wars since Korea in 1950. Um, the reason Trump had the best chance, and I say had past tense because his recent announcement that he spiked the talks was was deeply disturbing. Um, he has been on the right side of this issue, at least in his tweets, since at least uh, the middle of Obama's second term. It appears to me that Trump's, quote, instincts, as he once said during a speech about Afghanistan, have always been to pull out. I think he would like a grand deal. He would like to make himself sort of a deal maker who has a great summit and gets us out of Afghanistan once and for all. I think he realizes this is a dumb war. However, every one of his advisors, whether it was his original national security team, which is really just a troika of generals with tired old interventionist thinking, and then now more recently, his second iteration of national security advisors who are really neoconservative retreads like Mike Pompeo and John Bolton until he was fired yesterday, um, you know, Every one of these advisors has tried to get him to stay in Afghanistan. And, and inevitably, you know, the buck stops with him. And Trump has t- changed his mind and allowed himself to be persuaded time and again to stay. Now, look at the justification that Trump gave for this latest ending of the talks. It's absolutely ludicrous. And as a veteran of that war who buried a whole lot of kids, okay, uh, in Afghanistan, 
the justification is insulting. He said, I ended the talks, at least this is his ostensible justification, because the Taliban set off a bomb, what's new, they do that every day, and an American soldier was killed. What's new, that happens once a week, right? So why would you end the talks, which were our only chance of getting out of there, and therefore guarantee that more soldiers, countless soldiers, maybe hundreds, maybe thousands of American soldiers, to say nothing of the tens of thousands of Afghans, will now inevitably die. So by spiking the talks because an American soldier was killed, he just ensured that more American soldiers will be killed. So to me, it's, a, it's an illogical justification. I find it uh, intellectually dishonest, and, and I find it insulting as a soldier. And what are your thoughts on John Bolton's departure? Will it have, I mean, will it mean anything? Will he be replaced by another neoconservative? It's truly hard to say. I'm cautiously optimistic about Bolton's removal. Um, John Bolton uh, is a hawk's hawk. He has never met a regime he did not want to change. Uh, he has been on the wrong side of history and foreign policy uh, ideas for 30 years, at least maybe 40 years in public service. Okay. Uh, he was a disaster for American national security, uh, both when he worked for Reagan and then of course for baby Bush and, and then now for Trump. So look, there is still hope that Trump will change his mind. He is so erratic that yes, he said the peace talks were dead two days ago. That was his quote dead. I don't believe him. Uh, I think he'll change his mind and come back to the negotiating table, at least I hope. And I think that will be somewhat easier without Bolton in there whispering uh, sweet nothings about war and regime change and intervention in his ear. However, every time Trump has replaced someone in his cabinet, we've gotten someone worse in in response. So, so I fear that. Now, I think uh, this is a pipe dream. But Donald Trump should hire either Rand Paul or Tulsi Gabbard to be his national security advisor because what we really need is a restrainer, an anti-interventionist, and an anti-war advisor in his cabinet. Of course, he won't do that because the bipartisan national security warfare state consensus will make sure he doesn't do that and will lobby until he puts in a rather establishment figure. Let's just hope it, it's no one worse than Bolton. Luckily, it is actually hard to imagine someone worse than Bolton in that position. You mentioned Rand Paul and Tulsi Gabbard, both of which, uh, both of whom I think described the war in Syria as another regime change uh, war. Uh, what are your thoughts on Syria? It seems the war has uh, ended there. Do you think uh, the U.S. has given up or they'll wait for another opportunity? I think the United States, unless Trump does something rash and, of course, intelligent, which would be to pull all the soldiers out immediately. Uh, that won't happen. I think the United States will maintain uh, its position in eastern Syria. It will foolishly maintain a degree of autonomy by keeping a few thousand American soldiers there, backing the Kurdish, primarily Kurdish militias in the east, uh, and, and thereby fracture Syria and hold on to the eastern third where most of the oil is. Um, this is a very dangerous scenario. Because along the Euphrates River today, there is a de facto demilitarized zone between the United States military and its allies and the Russian, Iranian, and Syrian Assad regime forces. And, and we're one mistake 
we're one foolish soldier's mistake away from a, ma a major regional war there. A and it's also silly because that war is really over. Assad won. Russia won. Iran won. And, and, and here's another provocative statement. Maybe that's not such a bad thing. I don't like Bashar al-Assad. I'm not a fan of Vladimir Putin or many of the Ayatollahs in Iran. However, what is the bigger threat to the United States? A stable yet brutal dictatorship in Syria or transnational jihadi terror in the guise or in the form of the Al-Nusra Front or whatever they call themselves today, which is an Al-Qaeda franchise, or ISIS? And clearly the greater threat to American security is transnational jihadism. We can live with Assad in Syria. How do I know that? Because we've lived with Assad or his father in Syria since 1970 at no risk to the United States. Syria, under the Assad's, poses no demonstrable threat to American security. And what are your thoughts on the French, British, American-backed uh, backing of Saudi Arabia's uh, war on Yemen? Will that is there an end to that anytime soon? I don't think so. Um, I don't trust Congress to do much of anything. Um, Congress has long ago ceded its constitutionally required role in war making. You know, we've seen some rumblings in the Congress about stopping support for the Yemen war, but because Trump may and will veto any such legislation, it will require two thirds of the Senate and the House to overturn um, any veto. And Trump loves the Saudis. They're just his kind of people. You know, they're, they're an absolute monarchy, perhaps the last absolute monarchy on earth. Um, they are a theocracy, but they buy our weapons and they support us and, and, and Israel's policy in the Middle East. And Trump is, thinks that's just dandy. And there's no way we're going to get 67 senators to, uh, to end the war in Yemen, which is what it would require because of the president's veto. You know, there's just there's no stomach for that in the American political space. And what about then the well, I guess one of the worst case scenarios. So if you're saying that we'll keep troops uh, in Syria, the war will keep going uh, on, on Yemen. Let's say we don't pull out of Afghanistan. And, you know, one of the last countries in the project for the American century or, or that Wesley Clark mentioned was uh, Iran. And, you know, we have uh, the Saudi lobby, we have the Israel lobby, we have the military industrial complex, and they all seem obsessed with, with uh, Iran. Um, do you see an Iran war a real possibility in the future? And what would be the consequences? I don't know. Um, with Bolton gone, I think that it slightly decreases the chance of war with Iran. John Bolton is obsessed with Iran. So is Pompeo. So is Mattis, by the way. But uh, Bolton was particularly obsessed with Iran. I mean, to the extent that people like John Bolton and Rudy Giuliani have gone to Paris and given speeches to a Marxist jihadist terror cult, the MEK, right? With this marginal, you know, terrorist group in uh, Iran that really has no popular backing within Iran. And yet, you know, people like Bolton were giving speeches to this organization. I mean, that's how obsessed they were with regime change. In Tehran, I mean, Bolton has written articles in major newspapers saying bomb North Korea, bomb Iran. You know, he has, uh, he, you know, he the last time he spoke in Paris to the MEK, he said, I hope next year we're having this meeting in Tehran, which is a, a blatant threat for regime change. Uh, I don't know. I don't think Trump actually wants a war with Iran. I think he showed a um, an interesting degree of restraint 
after Iran shot down an American drone uh, by choosing at the last moment, he says, not to bomb Iran. Obviously, he was advised by almost everyone in his cabinet to do the opposite and, and actually bomb Iran. Now, the consequences, should the United States find itself at war with Iran, or, or especially if the United States should uh, go after regime change in Iran, would be absolutely devastating. Iran is not Iraq, right? And a few people in America know this. Iran is, is double the size of Iraq. Uh, Iran's population is three to four times the size of Iraq's. Uh, Iran is a uh, highly nationalist uh, population. And would what you would do if you invaded Iran or even attacked Iran is you would alienate the moderates and the liberals within Iran and, ha and they would then rally around the flag of the Ayatollahs and, and, and the theocracy in Iran. And, and so it would be utterly counterproductive. And it would, uh, it would mean thousands of dead Americans. It would mean maybe hundreds of thousands of dead Iranians. Um, it would risk war with Russia. Um, it, it would lead to attacks on American forces uh, in Iraq and in Syria, uh, across the great Middle East. It would be an absolute disaster for U.S. national security, but it would be even more of a disaster for the people of the greater Middle East. Yet again, these are always ultimately the victims of American military policy. And this is a question that I often ask my guests because the theme of the podcast is geopolitics and empire. And I, look at, I like to look at the historical cycles of the rise and fall of, of empires. And it seems the U.S. has not been able to win uh, any war in the past few decades, the U.S. economy seems to be in a uh, long-term decline, and we're experiencing a domestic political crisis. Meanwhile, Russia has developed cutting-edge hypersonic weaponry and teamed up with uh, China. And I just read today that uh, China, Iran, and Russia have agreed to, to hold um, military uh, joint exercises. And they've created this, uh, the, the coming together of Russia and China has created a threat to U.S. hegemony. And you've written that you are sick of patriotism, of exceptionalism and nationalism, which lead to aggressive war, military occupations, and ultimately dead children. And you say you welcome the inevitable decline of U.S. pretense and, and power. So uh, what, what would you comment on the U.S. empire today and how powerful is it? Empires in decline historically behave poorly. And I think uh, in the long arc of history, the U.S. empire is in decline. But what does this mean? This means the United States' only tool left is, is military power. And, and we are still extraordinarily powerful militarily. Um, and so we're acting out because we see the threat of a rising China and uh, a newly aggressive and assertive Russia. And so I would argue that Empires in decline, much like cornered animals, uh, cornered predators, behave very poorly. And so what, what you can expect to see are, are really, really dangerous and bloody aftershocks from the earthquake that's hitting the United States empire uh, and, and making it clear that over the long term uh, we're in decline. And that largely has to do with uh, economics. And it also largely has to do with the fact that we've overstretched our resources so badly over the last two decades, or you could even argue since Vietnam, that we've put ourselves into such massive debt that you know we are essentially uh, beholden to the Chinese economy. Uh, and, and not all of this was due to war and empire, but we do know that just since 9-11, according to the Brown Cost of uh, War study at Brown University, that we've spent at least $5.9 trillion and counting 
on these wars uh, to say nothing of the blood that has been shed uh, by both us and, and even more so the rest of the world. So, you know, that's a massive amount of money that could have been invested elsewhere. Um, it's all been put on the credit card because Americans hate taxes more than they hate terrorists. So, you know, I mean, I, I think that the United States is still powerful enough to make a whole lot of trouble and, and to destabilize a, a large swath of the world, specifically sort of, you know, Mackinder, of course, uh, called Eurasia, you know, the uh, the pivot of the of the world power. I mean, if you notice a, a lot of places that we're fighting, it's it's sort of on the Eurasian landmass. And uh, yeah, I, I, I think what we're going to see is a lot more bad behavior and a lot more bad news. And, and I quite frankly, I think as the United States empire does begin to decline, and it, it already is, um, I would say probably millions more will die as a result of that. I just wanted one of my final questions was on censorship. You know, just a few days ago, Daniel McAdams of the Ron Paul Institute had his Twitter account permanently terminated for criticizing U.S. foreign policy and the government. Uh, and we know that they have also censored the Democratic presidential candidate, uh, Dulce, Tulsi Gabbard. And so what do you make of the media and social media landscape and the level of control that the, the ruling powers have uh, on our media? The media is not our friend. Um, we have to remember that uh, a small number of corporations control all the media from the, quote, left-wing MSNBC to the, quote, right-wing Fox News. I mean, these are really all the same people. You know, they, they wear different jerseys, you know. They root for different teams, the blue and the red. But ultimately, they're on the same team, which is the team of power, empire, and uh, increased militarization and profits for the military-industrial complex. Look, the media is entertainment. It is entertainment. It is based on profits, but it's also it, it has a axe to grind. OK, and, and that axe is is a militarist one. And so look at what happened to Tulsi Gabbard. OK, the woman is polling at approximately two percent. Why in the world have there been such vehement attacks on her by everyone from uh, the Democratic political establishment to the media? to even late-night talk show hosts like Stephen Colbert. Why the attacks on Tulsi Gabbard, who is only polling at 2%? I truly believe it's because what she represents terrifies the corporate media, terrifies the political establishment, right? Terrifies the arms dealers, the merchants of death in the uh, military-industrial complex. So I'm not surprised to see that level of censorship. Um, I faced some of it myself uh, when I was still in the Army, um, I've seen, um, I've seen that you can, you can get away with racism in some cases on your Twitter account before you can get away with anti-militarism. And, and that's illustrative of the state of American society and culture today. I guess finally, if you could, if you have any final thought for us and what motivates you to keep on fighting the good fight and, and writing the stuff that you write about. You know, two things. Um, number one, this is a catharsis for me. You know, I struggle with PTSD and depression and some of the other outgrowths of trauma associated with war and writing about it gets it out of my head. And it's um, it's a very important thing to my mental health. But more importantly, you know, I wear the names of eight soldiers um, who died who were directly under my command. Uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan, five of whom were killed in combat, three of whom took their own lives, and 22 veterans a day take their lives, take their own lives in America today. I write for them, even if 
many of my soldiers don't necessarily agree with me, even if many of my soldiers don't possess the sort of intellectual vocabulary to articulate what they feel. Um, nevertheless, um, I write for them. I fight for them. Um, but I also fight for the children that I met in Baghdad who I gave shoes and watched smile and sometimes watched die in uh, car bombs, etc., that were unleashed by the destabilization wrought by American militarism. And um, I, guess it's, I guess it's for them that I write, for all of them, for my soldiers, but also for the innocents um, across the world. Because when, when I looked at Iraqis and, and Afghans to an extent, you know, I saw human faces. I didn't see monsters. I didn't see terrorists everywhere. You know, I saw 99% of the population that was just like my family, trying to get by paycheck to paycheck, trying to just provide for their family. And, and I have an enormous amount of sympathy for them. And uh, as a veteran, I'm lucky enough to have a platform. Um, I don't have delusions that I'm such a great writer that that's why I get published. I think I get published largely because I'm a, a decent writer and I have a platform as, as an anti-war veteran. And uh, uh, so be it. If, if, if that gives me the platform, then I'm going to yell from the mountaintops until they silence me or, uh, you know, or, or, or until I run out of ideas. But the odds are with the world as crazy it is, as it is, I don't think I'll ever run out of things to write about. Well, uh, I'm glad and I'm sure other people are glad um, that you continue to do the work that you do. And it inspires uh, some of us, such as myself. Sometimes I think of, of, of giving up and I just keep plodding along uh, with the podcast. And finally, how can people follow you online and what websites would you like to, to mention? Yeah, so, I mean, you, you got to Google me and I'm going to spell my name, S-J-U-R-S-E-N, because it's a crazy name. I write weekly columns, uh, Mondays at antiwar.com, Wednesdays or Thursdays at Truthdig. Check out my book, Ghost Riders of Baghdad, which is a critical analysis and memoir of the Iraq War. And finally, follow me on Twitter at, at SkepticalVet or check out my podcast, Fortress on a Hill. And I'd also tell listeners to go support uh, Major Danny uh, on his Patreon as well. Uh, so thanks, thanks for the interview. Thanks. It's really been a great conversation. I hope you enjoyed this Geopolitics and Empire podcast and interview. I would like to remind you that our website is geopoliticsandempire.com and you can sign up for our mailing list that goes out each weekend with the latest podcast and a long collection of important news headlines. It's good to sign up for the newsletter in case we experience censorship and deplatforming. You can help the Geopolitics and Empire podcast by subscribing to and interacting with all of our channels such as YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, Gab, Minds, and Steemit. You can also help us by leaving a rating and review on your favorite podcast platforms such as iTunes, CastBox, Stitcher, Spreaker, and so on. Finally, if you value our work and our mission and would like to see us continue interviewing experts from across the political spectrum, please consider leaving a one-time donation via PayPal or Bitcoin or becoming a regular monthly supporter on our Patreon. All the links can be found on geopoliticsandempire.com. Thanks for listening.